and in particular the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus' sacred and divinized humanity has brought about a revolution in the history of world religion and the fulfillment of Judaism in a way that would explode their brains. I mean, this exceeds their highest hopes, and yet it elicits yawns or kind of bewilderment from ordinary Christians and even Catholics who really need to rediscover the holiness in order for the sacraments to have their intended effect. In today's day and age, particularly with the problems in the church, there is a problem of holiness. What is holiness? Is God's church not holy? We call the Pope His Holiness, and yet there's so much confusion. So how do we get to a proper understanding? Well, we have the best person here who could give us that proper understanding. You all know him very well. His name is Dr. Scott Hahn. He's got a new book out all about holiness. It's called Praise for His Holy Name. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Dr. Scott Hahn, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, John Henry. Praise God. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Congratulations on another book. Um, tell us about Praise for His Holy Name. What's it about? Well, in one sense, it's the climax of a series of books that goes back to the Lamb's Supper, and then Hail Holy Queen, and now Holy is His Name. But in another way, it really does represent the culmination of a sort of personal arc, a narrative arc that goes back 50 years to my own conversion as a young teenager. Uh, when I was about 14, I found my way out of the Allegheny County Juvenile Court System and a delinquent lifestyle that left my parents bereft. Uh, I found Christ. He found me. I was still a long way off from the Catholic faith, but this experience for me was life-changing. Uh, but when I started attending church, I discovered this sort of love. Late 60s, early 70s, it was like a, a spiritual hippie hangover. And I couldn't help but wonder if this approach to chummy Jesus was not only superficial, but really off. And I had a series of experiences that led me to discover the teaching of a Protestant theologian by the name of R.C. Sproul. And uh, he only lived about an hour away, and the Ligonier Valley Study Center was newly established. And he was giving a series of lectures for a course entitled uh, The Holiness of God. And so when I heard about the holiness of God, I latched on to that which I knew I was looking for, what I was needing, what I was missing. And so I began to really devote myself to the teachings of Scripture, but also through the eyes of Dr. Sproul. And as a result, I must admit, it was uh, life-changing in a much deeper way. Uh, I remember back then, Protestantism in general was suffering from this malaise of secularization. And I was still far off from the Catholic faith, but I remember H. Richard Niebuhr describing 
the Christian faith in America as a God without wrath who brings man without sin into a kingdom without judgment. In other words, it's a kind of religious democracy. It's all egalitarian. I mean, you know the rest of the story. And so to discover the holiness of God led me more deeply into Scripture. But what ended up happening over the course of the next 10 or 15 years was life-changing in new ways and traumatizing, especially when I discovered when I discovered in the Old Testament a much deeper conception of holiness, and then discovered in the Catholic Church a perfect match for what I was discovering. When you read the new in light of the old and the Old Testament in light of the new, that match is a perfect match for what you find in the early church fathers. And so on the one hand, Sproul was focusing on the holiness of God and our experience of a holy God. Uh, he was drawing from a famous book that had been written back in 1917 by a German Protestant professor, Rudolf Otto, entitled The Idea of the Holy. Das Heilige was published in translation by Oxford University. And what Otto became famous for was noting that holiness is a trauma for us. It is a mystery, the mysterium tremendum et fascinans. It's mysterious. It causes us to tremble. And yet it also draws us. It fascinates us. And so I, I stuck with that for a couple of years, thinking that this approach to God is what we need, that there's a loss of the sense of the sacred. People aren't taking the holiness of God seriously. And then I began to realize, now, wait a second, holiness is not reducible to our own experience and our subjective response to it. Holiness in our subjective experience is important. But what is holiness objectively in God? What do we mean when we say, you alone are holy? You know, the idea that holy is his name. And I began to realize that you distinguish as a theologian, not to oppose, but to unite. And you usually do it by subordinating such a thing as our subjective response to holiness, like Moses at the burning bush, who is frightened, and yet at the same time, he is enthralled. He, he can't take his eyes off it, and yet he hears the voice of the Lord saying, take off your shoes for the ground that you stand on is holy. Or Isaiah, when he has the vision of the seraphim singing the sanctus in the heavenly temple, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm doomed to die. I, I dwell in a land full of people who are unclean. You distinguish the response that we need to have in the presence of an all-holy God, but what is holiness, you know? And uh, actually, the catechism distills what you find in the early church fathers and in St. Thomas Aquinas in paragraph 2809, this distinction is made and put into a definition where the holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. What is revealed of it in creation and history, that's what scripture calls glory, the radiance of his majesty. And so you recognize that holiness is something that is proper to God alone. It is the inaccessible center of his being. And what that really evokes is the holy of holies in the temple. That was strictly off limits for all humans. Well, except for Aaron, the high priest. But even Aaron was only allowed to go in once a year briefly to atone for the sins of the priests and the people. And then he quickly left. And so this inaccessible center is a reminder that holiness is the realm of the temple, the presence of God, the ministry of the priests. And therefore, in ancient Israel, and even still today, holiness is not the same thing as righteousness. 
in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, sanct the idea of sanctity is distinct from justice. Now, they're not opposed. They're clearly inseparably united. But justice is the ministry of the king in the palace. It pertains to the, the second table of the Decalogue, the last seven commandments that are all basically our interpersonal relations with fellow humans, beginning with our parents and everyone else. Whereas holiness, the realm of the temple, the ministry of the priests, that pertains to the first table of the Decalogue. The first three commandments have no other gods, don't take his name in vain, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The only time holiness occurs is at the end of the first table, the third commandment. And what that does, what it did for me at least, was to throw me back to the beginning where God creates all things in six days, but he does something with the seventh day that is unique. He sanctifies, he consecrates, kadosh, he makes it holy. That's the Sabbath, that's the sign of the covenant. And so what you discover there is, whoa, okay, that's the first time that kadosh occurs in all of Genesis. But then you keep reading, you discover it's the only time holiness occurs in all of Genesis because of what happens in the next chapter with our first parents. They have sanctifying grace that God had breathed into our first father, the breath of life, so that it wasn't just air that our first father was breathing. It was the spirit of God. It was the Holy Spirit sanctifying grace, divine life, if you will. When God said, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die, he wasn't talking about natural death, but spiritual death, or what Trent calls the death of the soul, original sin that he committed by giving consent to a mortal sin. 1 John 5, 16, a sin is mortal because it snuffs out the life of God in the soul. And so the catastrophic effects of that basically explain why holiness doesn't occur anywhere else in all 50 chapters of Genesis. But the restoration begins in Exodus, where there's an explosion of kadosh and all of the derivatives. 98 times in just 40 chapters, holiness occurs. And not only is the ground that Moses stands on holy, but the vestments of the priest, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle itself, the holy place, the holy of holies, I have over a dozen different things called holy. Israel is called to be a holy nation, but the fact is, nowhere in Exodus is Moses called a saint. He's described as righteous. Nowhere is Aaron called a saint, although he's consecrated. And so the move from the holiness of God to the interiority of humans in a certain ironic and unforeseen way is nowhere found. It, it, it took my interaction with an Orthodox Jewish rabbi uh, to kind of open my eyes to what should have been obvious because it was hiding in plain view, and that was that nobody in the Hebrew Bible was ever referred to as a saint. When I first heard Rabbi Berman say that, I'm like, I beg to differ. I didn't say it, but I was thinking it. So I, I scoured the Old Testament, and I discovered that really the, the main exception to this is that, well, okay, Noah's called righteous, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, and others too, but nobody's called holy. Nobody's called a saint except in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, when the Son of Man comes on the clouds of glory, returning to the Ancient of Days to receive this everlasting and universal kingdom, he turns around, and in the second half of Daniel 7, he gives that kingdom to, quote, the saints of the Most High. Oh, there, somebody's called, well, actually not by name, and that's not in the present. And then it occurred to me, well, that's the incarnation of the Son of God who becomes the Son of Man 
And when he rises and ascends into heaven, that's what Daniel's describing. It's a future oracle, but it also shows us the hinge on which all of history turns is the incarnation, and that the effect of the incarnation has been practically forgotten by people today, that in the New Testament, not only do you have people being called saints, but even just ordinary Corinthian believers living in the most secularized and desecrated town of all. And again, it's something that we should have noticed, but we didn't. But there in Matthew 27, verses 50 through 52, right after Jesus is raised from the dead, the tombs surrounding Jerusalem are opened, and all of these saints, the souls of the faithful departed from the Old Testament, are reunited temporarily with their bodies, and they're witnessed as signs by all of these inhabitants, the citizens of Jerusalem, but they're only there for a while because when Jesus ascends into heaven, it is on a solo flight. He takes captivity captive, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, citing Psalm 68, which was pointing to what would happen in the future as all of these promises are fulfilled. But you basically end up discovering that heaven has been repopulated. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah hears the Sanctus, only the seraphim are singing it because only angels dwell in heaven. But in Revelation 4, verse 8, when John the seer in his apocalypse describes the liturgy of heaven, who's singing the Sanctus? Well, the angels, but also the elders, the martyrs, all of these humans, the incarnation in general, the Paschal Mr. and in particular, the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus' sacred and divinized humanity has brought about a revolution in the history of world religion and the fulfillment of Judaism in a way that would explode their brains. I mean, this exceeds their highest hopes, and yet it elicits yawns or kind of bewilderment from ordinary Christians and even Catholics who really need to rediscover the holiness in order for the sacraments to have their intended effect, because if God alone is holy, then the only way we can become saints is not just by making ourselves bigger and better, but as the saints tell us, by making ourselves smaller and drawing closer to our Lord like Our Lady so that he can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. We can't do it for him, but we can dispose ourselves. We can cooperate with grace, but the sacraments make it possible for us to be saints. But the sacraments don't make it easy, much less automatic. We're not robots. And so the challenge for me in writing this book is not only living out the message, but also sharing what has taken me about 50 years, but doing it in a way that is easy breezy, that is accessible to basically a high school level of readers. And what I've discovered is that just as I have been sort of electrified by this discovery in new ways over many years, so friends and family members and also just colleagues and ordinary Catholics are reporting back to me, yeah, it's a it's having a similar effect. The the best example I can think of is I what Aquinas uses that our human nature is sort of like hard, cold iron, like an iron bar, whereas God's holiness is like the consuming fire that practically combusts the seraphim, the highest of the nine choirs. In fact, in Hebrew, zeraph, seraphim, it literally means the fiery or the burning ones. And so if you plunge the hard, cold iron of our humanity into that fire, or in this case, if the Son of God assumes our humanity, 
He does so for the purpose of making us partakers of the divine nature, not just forgiving us of sin, not just healing us, but sanctification actually has the principal purpose of divinizing us, of making us sons and daughters of the Most High, which would be metaphysically absurd and impossible apart from the Incarnation. And so that hard, cold iron of human nature, not only Christ, but now ours, becomes glowing. It's red hot. And so if you are touched with that, you're going to be basically caught ablaze. You're going to be catching fire. And that's what the saints are for, to communicate the faith in a way that makes other people combustible. That is, we are drawn into the consuming fire of a divine love that is eternal in the Trinity. He loves us just the way we are as sinners, and through the medicine of his mercy, he shows us that I love you too much to leave you the way you are. So we don't want to reduce unconditional love down to this idea that, oh, just stay close and conjure up warm and fuzzy feelings every time you think of my love or my holiness. That's counterfeit. That's bogus. We've got to really restore that sense of holiness so that when we approach him, we have reverence, we have awe. We wish to prostrate ourselves before him. And as, at the same time that we're humbling ourselves, he will fulfill that pledge. If you humble yourself, I will exalt you. Because we can't exalt ourselves up to the only thing for which we were made, which is sanctity. And if we recognize that the only purpose for which God has created us is to become saints, then okay, we're going to have to reassess practically everything in our lives, everything in the world. And I think it needs to start in the church, especially with our local parishes. Today's day and age, we have, exactly as you described, a total lack of reverence. Let's talk for a second only about uh, Catholics in the church today, by and large. People are walking up to receive Holy Communion without a thought. People are regarding Mass and the sacraments, the Blessed Sacrament itself, with very little regard. The difference between Moses's care for the burning bush, for the Israelites' care of the Ark of the Covenant, it's unreal how different that is from where we are today. By and large, today we are treating the Holy Eucharist like a cookie or cracker, if that, and the reverence for the Blessed Sacrament itself with almost disdain. I mean, sometimes they're shoving it over to a corner of the church or outside the main body of the church. Um, we're sometimes holding concerts in, in a church um, and having other things go on. Sometimes they forget to uh, repose the Blessed Sacrament somewhere else. Where are we at? Yeah, I mean, we are basically at the same place the church has been for 2,000 years all over the world. Just a quick note before we return, if you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. And so the, a little church history goes a long way in calming my nerves because, you know, I, I wouldn't say relax, but I would say do not give in to fear. Uh, but at the same time, 
I, I think my tendency can be to become scolding, you know, and that is to castigate and, and that sort of thing. Whereas I find that uh, the best way to help people is, is to restore the sense of holiness, that it's the holy sacrifice of the Mass, whether it's the Novus Ordo or the TLM, if it's a valid Mass, it's got more than enough grace to make us saints. And at the same time, it's the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and so it's a sacrifice first and foremost. And so the one up front is not primarily a celebrant or one who presides, but a priest. And so the Lord's table is what Malachi refers to as the altar, but we, we want to subordinate the idea of the sacrificial communion that we receive from the sacrificial act, which the human priest is offering, and the heavenly high priest is offering everlastingly. And so Christ is the high priest. He is the lamb. He is the altar. He is the temple. Destroy this temple, and on the third day, raise it up. And so the fact that God alone is holy and that Jesus is called the Holy One, if we get a little bit of supernaturality and a little bit of supernatural reality therapy, I, I think it'll go a long way to then sort of resolving a lot of disputes that might be treated as primarily political. But if we understand that it is holy, not just just, that it is the temple, not just you know the uh, state capital, uh, and that is a sacrifice first and foremost, and then secondarily, a meal, a sacrificial communion upon the lamb, then we're going to be able to say, well, in, if that's the case, I mean, if if heaven is coming to earth, if we're surrounded by angels and saints, then what difference does that make in terms of what I wear, in what kind of music we ought to be including in the sacramental liturgy, in terms of furniture, you know, how fitting are banners when we have the statues and the images and the icons that represent that which is holy. You know, I'm thinking of Leviticus 10, verse 10, where after Aaron has suffered the loss of his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, for apparently going into the holy place intoxicated, God reminds Aaron that it's primarily up to the priests to teach the difference between that which is holy and that which is common. Because what is sacred is not opposed to the secular. What we do for six days is secular. But our, our labor is ordered to liturgy. Our work is ordered to worship. And so the fruit of our labor is to be offered in sacrifice. And so the holy is not opposed to the common. The sacred is not opposed to the secular, but only to the sinful, like those two drunk priests, those sons of yours. So teach the people of Israel the difference between the holy and the common, the unclean and the clean. And what you discover is that in the, the sacramental order of the old law of Moses, there's an entire social hierarchy implied. And hierarchy comes from hierarchia, which is sacred order. All things are ordered to God. Uh, that's the first and the greatest of the commandments, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then secondly, to love our neighbor as ourselves for the, for the love of God and for his sake. And so, you know, if we get that which is first right, re returning to first principles to me is the single greatest problem. And it's the single simplest solution to the problem, because when we return to first principles, not just intellectually, not just personally, but publicly, socially, 
not just spiritually, but also physically, not just internally, but externally. I, I think the more we get things right that are first and fundamental, the more people are just going to look around and say, you know, th these songs are more appropriate. Chant, polyphony, this kind of furniture, you know. And then we'll look at the recovation of the 70s and the 80s and say, okay, we're getting finally out of the 60s and 70s. We're over this hippie hangover. Let's get, let's get back to the business of being Catholics and entering into the Mass as the holy sacrifice. One of the things that is perhaps most neglected today is a thought about the holiness of God, particularly around his holy name. The use of Jesus Christ as a swear word, as an expletive, is universal. Not only that, the name of Jesus, but oh my God, said as a, as a reaction statement or whatever. How serious is that? Is that something that, eh, that's whatever, or is it something really grave? You know, when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first one is have no other gods before me. But it's not enough just to have the right God. You have to worship him in the right way, on his terms, not your own. That's what the second commandment is all about. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for he will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Does not imply not ever taking God's name. No, it means invoking the holy name of God, the holy name of Christ, because that is consecration. That is how you sacralize. And when you look at the term sacramentum, in the Latin, that translates the you know, that is the translation for covenant oath. And I, I deal with this a fair bit in my book, Holy is His Name, that the way you worship the one true God in the right way is by calling upon His name. Our help is in the name of the Lord. We don't just say our help is in God. Our help is in His name because He's revealed His name. That's His true and essential character. And so I'm professor, I'm doctor, you know, I'm mister. But in a certain sense, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The name of God is the first person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Father, the Holy Son, the Holy Spirit. My kids can call upon me because they have my name. We can call upon God as Father because we bear his name in our baptismal status, but we dare not take his name in vain. You know, in, in a, a courtroom, if you invoke the name of God and lie, lying is ordinarily a sin, but it becomes a crime, a felony called perjury, because if you lie under oath, well, again, the Latin term for oath is sacramentum. I, I quoted in my book, Swear to God, this legal scholar from the University of Chicago Law School, Vining, who points out that where else do you find uh, grown adults in robes, using Latin, sitting up on a dice, approached with titular references like your honor, I petition the court, I pray thee your honor. Well, you know, that's because the courtroom is a kind of secular or natural sanctuary, which implies that our sanctuaries are supernatural courtrooms where God is the holy judge. And we invoke his name, we throw ourselves upon the mercy of the court in the confidior, but we continue to call upon the holy name of the Holy Trinity because the Father has sent the Son to pour out the Holy Spirit upon us. And this leads us to the third of the Ten Commandments, that we remember the Sabbath day. It's not at the end of the week anymore since the resurrection occurred on the first day. Our rest has already been achieved, and so we set apart the first day, but we also recognize that 
when we remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, this is what brings order to the rest of our weeks, the rest of our lives, that what we do in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, what we do with all of the other sacraments, is what ends up sanctifying all of the ordinary, the common, the secular tasks. And, you know, this is what I would call sanctified Catholic common sense. When you go back to the Middle Ages, I think you would have peasants scratching their heads, wondering why would it, it would need to be said if we're living with our fellow Catholics and attending the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. But here we are. And so I would say a little bit of study leads to a change of will, a change of practice, and a change of outlook. And I think restoring a supernatural outlook, preparing for Mass, looking at it from a heavenly, an eternal perspective. Again, I, I, I honestly believe that our omnipotent, all-holy God wants to sanctify us more than we want him to. He's capable of doing it in a way that we can't do. And so we have to rest in his presence and cry out to him in our need and say, you alone are holy. Our help is in the name of the Lord. You made heaven and earth. You turned sinners into saints. Get on with it. But please start with me because I'm still a long way off. Keep Holy Sabbath Day, which, of course, pertains to Sundays now. What does that mean? What should that look like for a Catholic family? What is keeping Sunday holy? And can we still do some of the work we have to do? What if my son has a job that, you know, he goes to Mass, but then he has to work because he works at a restaurant on Sundays? What, what do you answer to that? Well, on the one hand, we need to avoid legalism because the Church does. On the other hand, what we ought to do, if the law of the new covenant is written upon our hearts, then we do it out of desire and love, which is not less passion than fear. You know, we've got to get to the point where sons outserve the mere servants. You look at Islam, and that is a religion of divine slavery by their own self-description, whereas ours is a religion of divine sonship. Well, you know, I, I think that if sons serve the father out of love, they ought to outserve the mere servants or slaves out of fear. And this is how Aquinas distinguishes between the old covenant, which is the servile fear of slaves, and the new covenant, which is the filial fear of beloved daughters and sons. You know, I, I think just that little internal adjustment is going to go a long way. It's like the first domino to fall. And then if we allow those other things to happen, then we can approach the Lord's Day in a manner that is more thoughtful and intentional, deliberate. Over the, the, the course of 44 years of marriage, we started off as newlyweds, and I would ask her not to cook on Sabbath, you know, on the Lord's Day. I didn't call it the Sabbath, but I said, you know, you need a break. You need a rest. You're going down to Cambridge Mass working like eight, nine, ten-hour days. And so she deeply appreciated that. And then I invited my classmates in seminary over to our apartment, and they would bring the bread, the meat, the cheese, the lettuce, and the drinks, and that kind of thing. And so we had 10 or 15 guys over for three or four hours of amazing conversation that was anything but legalistic. And even now, I, I, I avoid employing people, because when you look at the commandment in Exodus 20, it's neither you nor your sons or daughters, manservants, maidservants, oxen, asses, or even the sojourners in your gates— and so you don't employ people if you can avoid that, and that includes your spouse. Uh, at the same time now, we prepare the banquet for our extended family every Sunday because we have five out of our 21 grandkids living close, and so we really have you know two or three hours of uh, a really blessed 
communion uh, after our uh, after our mass, and uh, and so I, I think if we enter into this uh, with a spirit of gratitude and a, a spirit of loving obedience, again, we're going to outdo the kind of servile obedience that is simply out of fear. And so this is why the puritanical approach to the Sabbath, the blue laws, they were wrong, but for the right reasons. Whereas I think the freedom that we have as Catholics is often right, but for the wrong reasons. You know, um, I, I just think it's a little bit, uh, as my mom used to say, bass backwards. And we have to get things right. The first things first, and then the second and third things will follow. We have a concept in your book, and you mentioned it earlier. It's quite controversial because it it sounds a lot like what uh, New Agers might say. You talk about divinization. A lot of people in the New Age and, and actually a lot of people in the world today think, yep, when I die, I'm going to become a spark with God in the divine and join the divine consciousness somehow. What do you mean by divinization? Divinization is ever ancient, ever new in this sense, that for quite a while, it was practically forgotten even by Catholic theologians, though it is lots of places in Aquinas and especially in Augustine, we tend to think, well, you know, it's either New Age or Mormon, when in fact the Mormons don't even have an eternal or infinite deity to divinize, to deify. And when we think of New Age, it really is a kind of implicit pantheism where we're already part of God anyway, if there is a transcendent deity at all, apart from the natural order. So pantheism, naturalism are all counterfeit. They're all bogus forms. And yet, at the same time, Christians in general, Catholics in particular, tend to think of salvation as primarily what we're saved from. And there's a lot of good news in what we're saved from. We're saved from hellfire, eternal judgment. We're saved from sin. We're saved from guilt. You know, we're saved from all kinds of suffering and all of that. And yet what we're saved for is much higher than what we're saved from. It's one thing to be a guilty criminal who is pardoned and acquitted so we can go off and be free. It's another thing to be adopted as a son or daughter of the Most High God. That's what divinization means. He assumed our nature by taking on humanity for the purpose of making us partakers of the divine nature. So as a little kid, I, you know, I got along sometimes better with our pet dog Sparky than my older brother Fritz, but I couldn't have adopted my, my dog because he had canine nature, not human nature. Well, you know, God can't adopt us and we can't adopt God, but in the incarnation, God does the unthinkable. What would be metaphysically absurd or impossible for Plato and Aristotle is precisely what the father pulls off by sending the son and pouring out the spirit of sonship. So that, you know, in Romans, for example, I've written a commentary on that. Paul is talking about justification in chapters 5 through 7. And then suddenly he shifts to sanctification in chapter 8. I think he mentions it once in chapter 6. But justification practically drops off the table because the Holy Spirit is mentioned 18 times in Romans 8. And what you have is this treatment of sanctification. We are heirs with God, fellow heirs you know, members of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And so Christ doesn't suffer and die to exempt us from suffering and death. He suffers and dies to endow our suffering and our dying with a redemptive power and a divinizing effect that is the, the, the mysterium fidei. This is what the incarnation's for. It's what the Paschal mystery does. And when we hear mysterium fidei, 
in the traditional Latin mass, it's there in the words of consecration, the dual consecration of the chalice, because by taking our blood, pouring it out, he doesn't suffer the loss of life. He is making us the gift of life and giving us a partaking of his own divinized humanity so that ours can become like his. And it's like suddenly the good news is almost too good to be true, It's except that it's basically what we get up and profess every Sunday in the creed. Going back to the Apostles' Creed, the threefold structure of the creed is Trinitarian, but the third part is I believe in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I can believe in a holy Catholic apostolic church that exceeds what ancient Israel was promised, and at the same time, the communion of what? Of citizens? No, saints. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. But this life everlasting is not just immortality. It is really entering into that eternal life that is proper only to God. And so, you know, I can't help but wonder if sometimes I get up and profess the creed on a Sunday, and to my guardian angel, I probably sound more like a parent saying, Polly, want a cracker? I mean, it's not like we say it too often, we ought to stop, but we ought to contemplate what we say and realize, man, it's amazing what we profess to be true, and yet how much we take it for granted. Holy is his name. Where can we get it, Scott? Well, I've published the last dozen or more of my books with uh, Emmaus Road, a publishing house that I founded with Tim Gray and Curtis Mark Ted Sri back in the 90s. Uh, but it's now the publishing arm of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Uh, and the St. Paul Center is really where I'm pouring myself out. Been around for 21 years. So go to stpaulcenter.com, but that's S-T, stpaulcenter.com. And you can get Holy is His Name and a lot of my other books as well, and a lot of other people's books besides mine that are as good or much better. It's sort of like when somebody asks you if you have a favorite child, and of course you shouldn't, you know, but I have to admit that, yeah, okay, I do have a favorite child. It's it's the one I happen to be with. I have a favorite grandchild. It's the one I'm holding right now, you know, and so my favorite book out of the 50 plus books that I've done is definitely Holy is His Name. Because, I mean, this is sort of the child that I just, uh, you know, am sharing with so many people. And the effect of writing it is so similar to the effect of ordinary Catholics who are reading it. Uh, and I do believe that, you know, transcending the liturgical political battles is an important part of really becoming saints. But not because it's irrelevant, but because, you know, ultimately the battle is the Lord's. And so the weapons are not primarily political or debate, but they have to do with the sacraments. And so the more we get the holy right, the more we get the sacraments right, I think we can almost let the chips fall where they may, because divine providence will set into motion a sanctification that might even exceed our highest hopes. Lord, hear our prayer. I want to thank you on behalf of our many viewers and readers, and probably many, many out there, who appreciate one thing that you do that I think is rather unique, you offer the wealth of your study and learning in ways that are comprehensible to the common man. And I think it's such a gift of charity. That was my passion going back to high school, because that's what R.C. Sproul did. He, he obviously did research, but he always turned it around and made it accessible to ordinary Christians. That's been my passion ever since, so I'm happy to hear that. It's also great to be with you, John Henry. And Thank God for all the good you do and keep up the great work. Thank you so very much. God bless you, Scott. God bless you too, dear brother. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. 
Hi everyone, this is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this video. And to see more like this, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. So check out our links in the description to read more, sign up for our newsletter, and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all of the latest life, family, and culture news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.